0: Okay, let's get some some tape going. And today is uh, October thirtieth, the day before Halloween, nineteen ninety-two. And I'm speaking with uh, Mr. Nadi in his office at the Alaska Native Foundation in Anchorage. And uh, for one of those kids or professors or someone fifty years from now, uh, this is the second interview that uh, I've done with Mr. Nadi. There was an interview I went back and looked at it last night and. November 15th, 1989, to show you how long I've been flailing around on this. And so if you have this tape but uh, are not familiar with the other tape, you might want to go look for that. Um, last mm-hmm. night I went through the notes of, of that interview, and I think we sort of left our discussion. We talked the first time about how AFN got organized, and Nick Gray, and Cook, on the Native Association, and and all the way up through the Hickel um, nomination, but um, going back and looking at it last night, I noticed that while I'd asked you, and we talked sort of in a, in a general way, that you guys went back and sort of went office to office, attempting to uh, successfully persuade the members of the Interior Committee that, uh, that uh, the land freeze was a good idea. I didn't ask you uh, specifically uh, what Stevenson and Gravel's reaction to that was. Uh, did you meet with him uh, on, on that project, and were they happy you were there, sad you were there, mad you were there? The Gravel, uh, I, now I'm trying to remember this ah. not quite a while ago, but I think Gravel supported it, except he was uh, responsible in part for withdrawing the pipeline corridor So, as long as the pipeline was not held up, and he could proceed with construction, I believe he supported the land freeze. Stevens, I'm not sure of his reaction, but I think it would have been one of uh, opposition to the land freeze. (coughs) Because he was a Hickel appointee, just freshly appointed, and Hickel's stand was total opposition to the land freeze. Uh, In fact, his Attorney General, uh, Edgar Paul Boyko, filed a lawsuit trying to get the land freeze lifted, and Stevens, being a recent appointee, I think, supported that uh, stand. Okay, well, um, I guess the next thing that's important that happens is uh, those hearings, I think, are in mid-January of 1969, so you guys would have been back east in early January. <clears throat> and uh, then you come back home having successfully uh, persuaded Senator Jackson to get the, the pledge on the land fridge from Walla Hickel. And then the next thing that happens is uh, AFN uh, amazingly gets hooked up with uh, Arthur Goldberg in, I believe, March of, of 1969 uh, in anticipation of the April 69 hearings. And uh, I, I'm familiar with the controversy that happened later in the spring in terms of Goldberg quitting and Boyko and all that sort of stuff, and I'll ask you about that in a second, but uh, I'm not familiar with how AFN and Arthur Goldberg got hooked up to begin with. Um, Was that just luck? Did you guys go looking for a national lawyer? How did that happen? We had been talking about finding a national lawyer because uh, we were dealing on the national scene and a lot of the uh, Senators and congressmen were lawyers in their own right, and and uh, we felt they needed to respect the group of lawyers or lawyers that we brought to our hearings with us. The, our local lawyers, while they were sincere and, and uh, competent, were unknown on the national scene. So while well, we, we talked about it, and then it was John Borbridge who brought me the name, how he got in contact with Arthur Goldberg, I'm not sure, but, uh, we took it to the board, and, uh, and they adopted that, uh, they were in favor of contacting him. When, when we appeared at the, uh, Senate hearings, I remember testifying one day before Jackson with, uh, Arthur Goldberg on my right, and, uh, and Ramsey Clark on my left, former Attorney General, and and uh, when they spoke, the uh, Senate hearings were a total different atmosphere. They had they had a great deal of respect. One being a former Attorney General for the United States, and one being a former Supreme Court Justice and uh, United Nations representative, and I think an ambassador. <coughs> Well, Secretary of Labor, then. Secretary of Labor, and yeah. but they, they, and they had gone through confirmations and Senate hearings, and <clears throat> were well known, and and their legal opinions were respected, and and I think it gave uh, some credibility to the Native land claims in Alaska. They have these uh, recognized <clears throat> uh, legal experts uh, testifying on our behalf. I remember one, one point, uh, Jackson asked a question, and uh, Ramsey Clark answered it off the cuff and then said, but, Senator, I'd be glad to uh, brief the question for you, and uh, Senator Jackson's answer was, General, if that's your recollection of the law, that's good enough for me. So, we had, uh, we had great uh, representation, legally and uh, politically. Right. Well, now, in terms of Borbridge uh, coming up with the idea, I know that that uh, Bob Goldberg had just moved to Anchorage. Uh, was he, he later was involved obviously with the Dottner, but was was he part of that at all? Or do you I suspect that was Bob who brought the name to uh, John Borbridge, and then Jared, John flew back and met with uh, uh, <coughs> Justice Goldberg. Well, that was my other going to be my next question. I know that I had seen some uh, reference in the Tender Times to to John making a trip back east. He went by himself. you didn't go on that as mm-hmm. I there? I didn't go back. I think maybe Willie went back. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: mm-hmm. no, he said he didn't go back. You no, know?
0: did Get that or uh, machine? Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. Well, the first thing that uh, that happens with that is that. Uh, is that Jackson does have these hearings on the 29th of, of April of 1969, to really kick off uh, this whole process seriously. And uh, one of the interesting things, in terms of what later happened uh, with Goldberg, in terms of people, uh, well, not so much Goldberg, but Ramsey Clark, really, um, is that uh, you know, he testified, and then you testified right after him in the afternoon, and you read Goldberg's testimony, and it's all sort of, you know, we got to do this social justice. These poor people, they live out in these villages. They don't have any electricity. You know, this is, you know, they're, you know, they are objects of our concern. Blah blah blah. And in terms of the amount of land, he doesn't say. You know, he just he just tells Jackson uh, that that the natives ought to get an adequate and reasonable quote-unquote amount of land. And then he goes on again with this sort of social welfare mm-hmm. argument, all of which is quite compelling, but it was quite different. You then came in afterwards and said, yeah, I'll tell you what reasonable and adequate is. It's 40 million <laughs> acres, in case you want to know, and sort of make the, you know, we have land rights argument here. and. It seemed to me that that was the earliest I could see the sort of two different philosophies about why we were doing this sort of exhibiting themselves. Uh, were you guys aware of those differences at, at that early point, or it just didn't, uh... no, we weren't? But uh, um, just the fact that he might uh, soft pedal our position, but. Uh, The fact that when he went before the Senate, he said uh, this is an issue of national honor, indeed international importance, Um, I think paved the way for us to make our own case um, and have them listened to seriously. Okay, well, Mm I don't want to put words in your mouth there, just that it seems that that becomes... Sort of important with Arctic Slope and others later on about this land right for social welfare. Um, uh, actually, welfare is not the right view. Uh, uh, Arctic Slope's position always was that it was a, a land, land-based settlement. They kept repeating it. it's not uh, it's not social welfare. Right. Um, Arthur, you, uh, your Pixen, Joey Pixen used to say, we are landlords and uh, he was very effective at it. Uh, we started at 80 million acres at one point and compromised with the promise of support from Hickel if we went to 40 million acres. Yes. And then when we got to the hearings as governor, he, uh, he put conditions on the 40 million acres, saying if maybe if half of it came from uh, federal reserves. But we did get conditioned uh, support from the state, which we wanted. We thought it was real important to have the state support us, uh, rather than fight us. Right, well, um, obviously you guys thought that you had hired, well, I mean, actually you didn't think, you had hired Arthur Goldberg, (coughs) but sort of as as an extra add-on, Goldberg obviously went out and retained Ed Weinberg, and then there were, uh, Goldberg had a number of younger attorneys working with him. I think uh, Bill Iverson was one, and, and at least early on there was, I've seen memos from uh, like Peter Burley and and Jay Greenfield. Uh, what were your impressions of those guys? Were they uh, just sort of doing Goldberg's bidding? Were they sort of independent actors and all of this? Yeah, stuff? none of them really stuck around very long. They came to Anchorage for one or two meetings, and then they were replaced, and they are feeding the information, I felt, to, to Goldberg, but uh, they weren't on their own right here. I think Goldberg ran into trouble with local attorneys when he went before the Senate and said he was not accepting a personal fee for his services. Um, he did charge for his associates' time, like these people you just named, but his, he did not get a fee himself. Um, when the Senators found out that the local attorneys had 10% contracts, 10% land and 10% in money uh, uh, of any settlement, uh, he asked every attorney to submit their contracts to the committee. And when they did, they uh, the Congress voided them and said they would not Allow ten percent contracts, and uh, the local attorneys were very unhappy with that, and and there was uh, there was a lot of uh, well, unhappiness, even trying to get AFN to get rid of Goldberg. Right. Well, I know that that uh, um, <coughs> I haven't talked to Bob about it, Goldberg, but as, as I understand the sort of the. Uh, the straw that broke the camel's back and all of that was, I guess, Boyko down in Kodiak had gone to the press and said that that uh, Goldberg was trying to get 10% of the judgment, which would have been, you know, 50 million dollars or something. And so Goldberg quit in the huff and then when there was the staff and board meeting about all of this, uh, amazingly the vote to accept Goldberg's resignation uh, lost on a 10-10 uh, split according to the Tender Times, and and that sort of surprised me in terms of there being that much opposition to Goldberg. If it was a ten ten split, um, why were people, um, you know, who were those ten votes that didn't want him around? That, that, were they just all people trapped by their their own regional council, or did, were there concerns about Goldberg? Or? Well, I I think. The attorneys were heavily involved in in influencing the clients. Uh, When, as president of AFN, I would have a a disagreement with uh, some of the regions on some of their stands, Uh, their their attorneys would uh, get politically involved and try to unseat me. And they would make, some of them even made public statements about uh, their stand on issues, which I thought was inappropriate. We had a meeting one time in AFN where we wanted to meet without attorneys, and the attorneys argued against, they said that they represented their clients and were, had a right to be in the room in any discussion we had. And uh, it went to a vote of the board, and it was a tie vote. Huh. I cast the uh, tie-breaking vote in favor of meeting by ourselves. And so the attorneys, I think, uh, had a great deal to do with influencing the, that vote. On the, on the Goldberg. Right. Okay, well, uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, that April 1969 hearing, the, the point of that hearing, of course, was to take testimony at that point on on the legislation that the Scoop Jackson had just introduced, which was uh, S-1830 you may or may not remember the number, which was mm-hmm. the, the bill that the uh, field committee had, had given to Jackson, and uh, it was uh, different from, from the old Hickel Task Force bill in a number of respects, mm-hmm. and I guess the, the first question about that is that, that bill obviously was the result of, of uh, almost a year's worth of, of uh, work putting together Alaskan natives in the land that, the Hickok and Fitzgerald and Bob Arnold people that people had done over at the field Committee. and uh, were you guys involved in that at all? Did they involve you in putting together Alaska the land? Uh, no, no. They, we weren't involved in any of the decision making. And I was kind of surprised by the uh, the recommendations. If I remember right, they were their land uh, recommendation was. Pretty small. Oh, so was next to nothing. I mean, it was like and uh, but that was in spite of. In the book for Alaska natives in the land, they said it took. Uh, my memory is not real good on this, but I think it said it took 12,000 12, acres or one hundred twenty thousand acres. That, that number sticks for some reason. To uh, foraging to we have an equivalent of cash income of $1,800 a year, who had said that you needed a great deal of land to subsist. And uh, our thrust at the time was to protect the subsistence uh, hunting rights to the villagers. And uh, uh, we're talking about uh, the field committee recommendation. Uh, <coughs> I know, uh, my recollection is that uh, what they said was that if you wanted to protect the subsistence economy, you needed a land settlement of 60 or 80 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was said sort of out front. And and what they had, of course, is they had they had sort of uh, a subsistence system, sort of like the great-great-great-grandparent of Tidalate of Uh But then in terms of the actual land and fee, they were only going to give out literally like about three and a half million, I think, initially. The other thing was that uh, they had come up with this idea of having, uh, rather than the regional corporations, that obviously the AFM regional organizations were already becoming uh, uh, very attracted to, the the field committee recommendation was to just have two statewide corporations, and uh, I couldn't really find in the in the April 69 hearing records, um, uh, any testimony at that point on how you guys felt about that? Uh, how did people feel about the idea of the Statewide virtually? Yeah. I don't think we um, ever addressed it. We just kept plunging ahead with our own position because everybody had uh, had a bill in. You know, our first bill would have given us title to all of Alaska all right. virtually. And then in the next five years, Everybody had a bill. The administration had a bill. BIA had a bill. State of Alaska had a bill. Interior committees had a bill. And the final result was a kind of a amalgamation of uh, all these ideas. And we lost we lost some major points in our bill uh, over our, our position on uh, what a settlement ought to be. Well, um one of the other things that happens that summer, we've already talked about the fact that uh, that Ramsey Clark uh, gets involved. Did did you know that Clark was going to end up being your lawyer at the time you got Goldberg? Did he mention this? Or did Clark just show up one day and say, Arthur's off running for governor of New York, which I think is what he was off spending most of his time doing? Um, how did he sort of get involved? Well, I don't remember exactly but uh, Goldberg associated him and he came to our hearings and then just started filling in and then when Goldberg left he was just kind of a uh, senior senior uh, lawyer up until that point FN was mainly represented by the regional lawyers um we did have, for a short time, some attorneys who also represented some of the regions. Maybe even ha- as many as half of the regions had the same lawyer, and they just kind of took over as AFN's uh, legal advisors, um, and then quit. And so we, we didn't have attorneys within AFN. We just kind of depended on on the. Uh, regional lawyers because they put together the region's positions yeah. and they had come together and they'd argue amongst the, uh, our, before our board and then we would adopt the, the views that would uh, suited the group as a whole without uh, advice specifically for AFN because we were just carrying water for the regions. Okay, well, um, Sort of after that April hearing and Ramsey Clark coming and coming on board, uh, the really, at least as I can look back at the record, was does not appear to be a lot of activity until the fall of '69. The first uh, real Senate Interior Committee executive sessions were in the fall. I think in, in November of '69, and, and I think it looks like to me that. That, uh, did you move with your family back to Washington for a while then in yeah. the fall of 69 I did for about three months we were running into uh, heavy opposition from the state in spite of our efforts you know we we want to do arm-in-arm arm with the state and have the state testify and say let's settle it then and, and, and agree with us on some of our major points but the state um, under Hickel filed lawsuit and was really opposing a lot that we did. Even though he funded the Rural Commission and tried to get some consensus, uh, AFN came to some agreement, but the state wouldn't agree with what we, we wanted. So they opposed us in Congress. And I always had the feeling that the Senate was, was reluctant to uh, take a stand in opposition to a governor. And so nothing happened for a while. And Hickle became Secretary of Interior. <coughs> uh, Miller um, opposed us, but was not very active. Uh, the Royal Commission died. Um, Did it just die because Miller didn't want to use it? Is that basically what happened? Yeah, maybe they defunded it, too. And then so nothing much happened until Egan got in. And Egan grabbed it and supported it. He, not the concepts of it, but he said, "Let's settle it." And soon as there was no opposition from a governor for settlement, that's when things started to happen again. Right. Well, you, you jumped ahead of I me. I jumped bit, ahead right, of you by a year. <laughs> by about a year. And and uh, I was going to get to Miller, but we might as well talk about him now. I mean, originally, uh, Miller had had. Uh, at that April 1969 hearing, he had, that was his <clears throat> first appearance as governor after Hickel had had uh, promoted him by leaving. Mm-hmm. And he seems like a relatively solid citizen. His testimony is, is sort of is consistent with Hickel's in terms of, uh, of the Hickel Task Force bill. And then right in that November, I guess, right after you had, had moved to Washington and the Senate committee was actually getting ready to go into a markup on this thing, all of a sudden Miller sends Jackson a couple of letters saying the state has completely reevaluated its position, and the state refuses to participate in the settlement uh, financially, and the state doesn't think that these people are giving the lunch, and you know, this is your problem not mine, you know, no help from us here, blah blah blah. Um, so I guess the, the first question is uh, what was your opinion Miller up to that point, and were you guys—did did that come as a, as a surprise to you guys when he sort of repudiated any even the participation Hickel had had uh, reluctantly been giving? I, I think we kind of expected it. He was—he was, uh, he was uh, just following Hickel's lead for a while, and then he was taken over by advisors. He himself, um, I don't think, formed any. Uh, any policies except his, instinctively he was against any kind of a settlement. So when his advisors took a stand and advised him that way, he, it was easy for him to adopt it. But he was never... Uh, well, His the result of that was uh, inaction on the part of the Congress. Right. Well, uh, actually before we leave that, uh, a number of people have told me that they thought Miller was sort of captured Know, whichever way the wind blew, in terms of his own, his own people, and, and uh, the only two people I've been able to theorize really had sort of control over him. One was of course Bob Ward, who was the lieutenant governor, and then I guess Ken Edwards was his attorney general, and they are those basically the two guys that advised him. That advised him, or was there anybody else that was really leaning on the Uh No, uh, internally I think those were the ones but uh, there's probably some outside influence, too. Uh, Donald Burr had been attorney general under uh, Hickle, his first attorney general, and I think he might still have been active. Uh, I can't identify anybody else on the outside, but but I suspect that he just kind of yielded uh, to outside pressure and his internal advisors, and it was easy to do because he he agreed with them. Okay, well... And he was he, looking at re-election. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and obviously made the bad assessment of that. Uh, we'll talk about it in a second. But uh, as you go into that markup in November of 69, I've talked to Bill Van s about it. and He was, of course, these were all secret at the time. And so he was one of the few people that was in the room being the committee's lawyer. And he says, he sort of smiles even to this day, that the, the first... Um, the first meeting, just as I was telling you yesterday about how the first meeting of the committee in January of 69 had been Stevens and Gravel arguing with each other, that, that they went in to mark up the Claims Act in November of 69, and the entire meeting was taken over with Stevens and Gravel arguing with each other. And, and Jackson, and they were arguing, I guess, uh, Gravel was supporting you guys on the royalty concept, and Stevens said a royalty over my dead body, and they Almost every of the major policy issues, according to Bill, that immediately, as soon as Scoop would bring one of these issues up, it would deteriorate into Stevens and Gravel arguing with each other. And and he eventually told them, he Scoop, that we're not going to do anything here until you guys go out and get a position together. And so I guess the the first question about all that is uh, assuming you had moved back now, uh, what were Stevens and Gravel's positions? Were you guys Getting along with Stevens, getting along with Gravel better, uh, how important was this royalty business, uh, what was happening at that point? Gravel was generally more supportive. Uh, I don't know in detail how he himself believed about all this stuff, but, but, uh, but he supported us, uh, just by his, uh, meeting with us and telling us where he stood on a lot of these things. He uh, he was much more helpful. Stevens, on the other hand, was uh, open about his opposition to 2% in perpetuity. And that's the one that sticks out in my mind. But generally, he, uh, he was not all that helpful in, in details. Uh, and overall, he, he opposed the statewide corporation. I think it was Stevens who was mainly responsible for the 200 village corporations which uh, I think doomed many of them to failure because they were just too small and uh, didn't have the resource base or money base to be successful. Uh, so, but, but he was open about it. Well, how, about, how about on the land question, in terms of the size of the land settlement at that point in the process? I don't remember his stand on that. Well, the reason I ask is because uh, uh, they do go off and do that, and they <clears throat> they're they already not getting along with each other, obviously, and, and they suck it up and, and sit down and apparently hammer out uh, sort of a Stevens-Gravel conceptual compromise, which, which in December of 69, I don't know, I guess, did you have the whole AFN board back? Yeah. At that point, there were, seems to be a lot of people yeah. that were in town. Not yeah. just we used to have the whole AFN board back then. That when they came to an agreement, the the opposition then shifted to the White House on to the forty million acres. Right. Well, you guys repudiate that agreement. That's the reason, what so, uh, as as I understand it, uh, <clears throat> and i somewhere in my files. I've got a copy of it, is That they had hammered together this agreement where. Stevens had given up on the royalty. Uh, he agreed to support the concept of the royalty, but for a fixed period of time, I mean, it was like ten years or something. And, and he had a, they had a variety of other things they'd agreed to, and according to, to both Fred Paul and Wickwire, um, and actually Van S. too, I think he remembers walking by, but, but their recollection was that the whole AFM board was back in Washington in December, and that there was this big meeting, and, and one day when the Senate Interior Committee hearing room was being used, and Stevens and Gravel sort of distributed this deal, and Evan Hobson and everybody just went through the roof because they had sort of left out land. They had, <laughs> they, had they had, pretty much uh, you know everything within the, the ballpark of negotiation, but there was no land component really. The land wasn't much better than in the field committee deal. Um, and that's why Jackson eventually, when, when, uh, when you guys repudiated that, Stevens and Gravel couldn't go forward with it, and Jackson said "The hell with it, and they had to start over again that whole spring of 1970. Do you, does that ring a bell at all? Do you, do you remember the deal? Any of that, or uh, Hobson being upset? Or well, the uh, North Slope was always upset. They pulled out AFN a couple of times right. on issues, came back in, but I don't remember that specifically. Okay. Um, well, the other thing that I haven't asked you at this point is about AFN finances. Now, you remember you mentioned that, that you're back there, um, so if you were back, say, for three months, that would be, like, say, November, December, January, something like that. Yeah. Um, Actually, I came back end of December. End of December? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, back fact... Uh, Maybe in September, even. September, October. Okay. Uh, so you, went, you mean you went home at the end of December? Yeah, came back to Alaska. Okay. Uh, what was the AFN lobby at that point? You were there, obviously, for that period of time every day. Um, and obviously the lawyers, the Ed Weinbergs and the Iversons and those guys were around because they lived in Washington. Um, was and I guess, was Charlie there? Who, who else was there on an ongoing basis? No, one on an ongoing basis, but it seemed like someone was always in town—Charlie or Willie or Evan or Warbridge. And, um, there was always somebody rotating in and out, and we were every day working with the lawyers and up on the hill, going door to door. Well, I was, that was my my next question, which was uh, that spring of uh, 1970, um, the committee starts really from scratch to write a bill. And the way that Jackson did it was that he seems to have done it by concepts, for um, sort of the famous Jackson conceptual markup, which is we'll agree to these concepts, and then, that's the hard part, guys, and then after the concepts are all agreed to, then we'll just have Bill Van off and just type all these concepts up into a bill. and That process goes on January, February, March, April, and uh, well, you you weren't back there then, day to day, for that no. process. Or, no. so you guys are still just doing this on rotation, right? And uh, uh, do you recall, in terms of this going door to door, the the uh, big problem appears to be that there were a lot of conservative Republicans. Uh, Gordon Alec, who is the ranking minority guy from Colorado, and I guess also this fellow uh, Fannin from, from New Mexico or Arizona. Yeah. Who were just apparently adamantly opposed to giving out land, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, did you recall meeting with those guys at all? Yeah, uh, yeah that you was uh, you know I was a lot younger and it used to be scary, but I'd make an appointment, and go in, and screw up my courage, and in, in the face of known opposition, I knew how they feel, maybe scowling at me, and I would I would make my case, and then uh, some of them openly disagreed with me, but I just kept on. Making the arguments for what we wanted, but yeah, we all those guys. I mean, a lot of those guys totally disagreed with what we. Well, so how did? Uh, so then, having to handle them was basically sort of Jackson and Stevens really had to deal with. I mean, somehow that bill came out of the committee uh, without their. <coughs> there wasn't much land in it. That's one of the reasons to build that out of it. Yeah, um, I don't know how they did it internally, um, but they, they, they knew our feelings, because we we talked to all of them. Okay, well, the the uh, other thing that happens in the spring of 1970, which later turns out to be very important, is um, that in April of 1970 is when uh, Judge Hart, during, back in the issues the Stevens Village injunction that says that that the pipeline is not going to cross lands claimed by Stevens Village until uh, uh, as long as they have their claims unresolved. And and that obviously, uh, in terms of what happened with the White House later, and a whole variety of things, that was a very important uh, display of what (laughs) what the problem was. And and I had lunch with David Wolf last week to talk a little about that. And one of the things that that uh, surprised me, because I had just assumed the opposite without knowing, is that he said that that whole lawsuit, that he does not recall any coordination with AFN about the filing of that lawsuit, or or whether all this was a good idea. And, uh, and I found that interesting, because at the time, Al Ketzler was both the head of TCC, and he was also working for you. I think as as the deputy uh, executive director under Willie, you were the uh, president. I was wondering, uh, how uh, is that true to your recollection? I mean, did did David remember it right? Did you guys were sort of not in in the loop on that, or that's true? We weren't involved in uh, encouraging it or arguing for it or anything, but. uh, if I remember right, their attorneys were probably also uh, attending AFN board meetings. So, in that sense, they uh, they were very aware of our position at AFN, and uh, I, I don't know their, their intent. I'm sure was to try to help, which it did. whether they intended to or not, but it did help. Right. right. But that actually gets to the to the to the real mystery. And that is that, uh, you know, the other thing that surprised me about my chat with David was that he said, you know, you know, I said, well, I assume what you guys were out to do, of course, was to stop the pipeline until, until claim, the native claims were settled, therefore, for putting more pressure on to assist the villages in getting their claims settled. He says, oh, no, absolutely not. But what we were, the only reason that lawsuit got filed. Was as a tactic to to persuade Taps to keep the promises that they had made to the villages the previous summer, and if they had kept those promises, we never would have filed the lawsuit. So then I went back and sort of looked at the tender Times, and and lo and behold, what I found was that that uh, back in you know the summer of '69, that you know Taps tried to get, uh, you know, Copper River and and TCC and everybody and and, you know, got them to sign waivers uh, to let the pipeline go forward, and in exchange, you know, the villagers did the same thing in those regions, and, and in exchange, everybody was going to get, they weren't going to pay any money for the right-of-way, that everybody was going to get these jobs, and there be all yeah. these contracts, and and it's obviously easy to look back on, it, but uh, that really gave up the best leverage. I mean, stop. There. what you were saying there was that if you guys would give us these contracts, we will let the pipeline go forward. And if the pipeline went forward, of course, nobody really would care <laughs> yeah. all that much about settling land claims. But, but nobody really sort of put their foot down. I and mean, I was curious as to, was that discussed at the board level of not trying to stop the pipeline at that point, or why did it go so easily? You know, I don't remember any part of that. I remember the agreements. Uh, I thought it was a mistake them to sign the waivers. With just the phone calls and informal discussions, we tried to convince some of the people that they shouldn't do it, but they did anyway. When well, I did, did AFN, I know that... Uh, that uh, The Stevens Village lawsuit was filed, I think, in like March of 1970, and Hickel, and that was to prevent Hickel from actually issuing the right-of-way permit across village lands, but the land freeze, uh, Hickel had actually modified the land freeze to to basically clear off the the right-of-way corridor back, I think, in December of the previous year. And uh, was there ever any discussion um, on the part of AFN about AFN filing a lawsuit to stop the pipeline and, uh, I don't remember any discussion at all Okay. okay um, <clears throat> and then I think the other thing that uh, we haven't talked about is sort of part of the sort of the Keith Miller uh, component of this and that is there appears to be, uh, when the committee began marking this stuff up with the royalty and everything else, a major uh, white backlash here at home, led by Atwood and, <laughs> and those people. And uh, how extensive, was it just Atwood, or was it, was it much more pervasive than that? And was it, you know, how how bad was it? this guy's grumbling? Was it ugly? Um, how did the, the non-Native community feel about all this? Well, they felt a lot, sir. Um led, of course, by editorials. And uh, the reason is some of them felt threatened. And I got calls from non-natives who, uh, their homesteads, after they'd proved up on them, were not approved. They couldn't get paid manufacturing sites. Uh, The pipeline, of course, a lot of people have money and equipment that are expecting to put it to work. All of these things, there was a a lot of... uh, a different place a hotbed of a, a lot of high emotions for and against the, the settlement now, now David wolf told me that uh, when you know, he was obviously living in Fairbanks at the time when you were you were down here uh, he told me that actually after the Stevens village injunction came down that he actually had his life threatened, in, in a no, and I know fooling around fashion did you ever experience that kind of there so. was a there was a contract out on me seriously seriously and uh i called the uh attorney general about it and asked them what he knew about it he said nothing but stay by your phone and uh the head of the state troopers called me and said what you've been hearing is true what you don't know is that we uh we guard your house 24 hours a day we go to work with you go to school with your kids we follow the buses to school. We follow the buses home. We make sure the kids get in the house or at the house every day. We go to lunch with you. and they they knew they knew who the people were, and they even had a, a state group. Even had an insider within the group who who uh, was on probation. And when they found out about it, they pulled the person in and said, you keep us informed or you're going back to jail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that kind of, uh, well, that cooled the whole thing, but it there was a serious... This mm-hmm. should have been sort of spring of 70 when... No, that was later. That was after Lent Pains. That would have been 72, maybe, over the, over the pipeline. 72, 73, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, everyone's so civilized around here these days. It's hard yeah. to believe how, how, uh, how raucous that... Uh, that could be, well, the, the, uh, the committee gets its bill done in April of 70. And uh, I came across some some newspaper uh, articles in the Empire that apparently in, I guess, April of 1970, Ramsey Clark came up uh, to Juneau and I guess met with the AFM board, I think. Uh, I know he talked to the legislature about... Um, about the bill and why it was such a great idea, and uh, in terms of what <coughs> later happened on the floor, um, do you recall did, what Clark's attitude was about the Senate Interior Committee bill, about you guys really trying to improve it with, with amendments and that sort of thing? No, I remember him coming to, to Juno, and uh, he met up in the uh, what's now the Senate Finance Room with a group of legislators and uh, made the argument that it was uh, necessary and that it was a good deal for the state as well as for Native people, but I don't remember his attitude on the bill. Well, let me get back to that. Just just for the record, the attorney general I called was Abram Gross, and the head of public safety who called me back was uh, Burton, So during that era. So the people need to, yeah. to run that down. Uh, be interesting to know. So no, nothing ever since nobody actually ever tried to do you any harm. Nobody ever got arrested. Yeah, from, right. Right. So we don't know <coughs> who who those guys were. We don't know whether it was C.W. Snedden or something. No. No. <laughs> they, uh, they knew. They knew uh, a lot about uh, in inner circle of who it was. Well, the reason that I asked about Ramsey Clark is that um, it is interesting that it appears that uh, Van S told me that that after the bill was was uh, was put together, that he recalls—I don't know whether you were with him or not—that Ramsey and Native leaders coming in. Uh, to uh, meet with with him and scoop about trying to approve the bill in terms of whether you know Jackson would accept this amendment or that amendment, and on the floor when the bill got to the Senate floor, and that, that Jackson you know, did accept some amendments. He accepted uh, apparently there was no guarantee with the way the bill was drafted that you'd even get the, the amount of acres that the bill said you were entitled to, and, and there was this amendment to make. Uh, to give out <coughs> land arctic slope uh, in feed, which would have been mineral rights up inside Pet Four, and so long as it was all Seven-Eyed, and, you know, there's some things like that on the margins, but that, in terms of the big issues for AFN, which would have been, obviously, 40 million acres, and, uh, and regional corporations versus, versus uh, the statewide corporation, and things like that, the Jackson said no, I'm not going uh, I'm not going to agree with amendments like that and that and that then that Ramsey sort of said okay, according to Bill Byler and did not intend to run uh, amendments on the floor against Jacks um, and that it's by it's Bill Byler's recollection that he heard about this and that he had gone to Kennedy and Brett Harris, and had said this was sort of wrong, and that you got to something about the 40 million acres, and that he bumped into Ewan Burbridge on the street about the time of the, of the Senate uh, floor action, and mentioned all this, and that's sort of how that 40 million acre amendment And then it got started, and it did not come through Ramsey Clark. Do you, do you remember that at all mm-hmm. in terms of? I don't. Once it got in the bill, though, um, it was uh, Don Wright and Laura Burke, we got the administration to accept that. Maybe we're going to right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that. I'm going to get to that. I'm just. I'm just signing I can't recall that specifically. Bill okay. Byler's role in it. Okay. And you don't recall Ramsey's no. sort of attitude about about all that. Okay. Um, uh, were you back uh, uh, for the center floor you in Washington? No. Right at the end there, I wasn't there. I mean, for seventy, not for seventy-one. You know, I can't okay, well, the next thing that happens, of course, is well, is that uh, the bill does actually get off the Senate floor in 1970 fairly easily. But uh, you know, Jackson has it all greased, and I guess Stevens kept the the Alex under control, and and, uh, and the whole thing moves over to the House. There was obviously at that point it runs into the to the dead end of, of Wayne Aspinall and, and Jim Haley. And, mm-hmm. uh, were you involved in, in in the late summer of '70 in lobbying the House and trying to get Aspinall to to do something? What were your impressions of Aspinall? I had dinner with Aspinall. And I lobbied uh, Haley from Florida. Right, Sarasota. And Aspinall wouldn't budge. He was, he was an old Indian fighter, I think, <laughs> from Colorado, that really didn't believe in a lot of this stuff. Uh, so he was, a, a, he was a crotchety old guy. He didn't mince words with him. He disagreed with he told you. So we didn't make much headway with him. It was only after, it was after some of those people changed. how. Right, it was seventy-one in yeah, Vegas, Chicago. Right. But, but this was, I know that in in uh, in '70, that's when when Howard Pollack was still there. What, what about Pollack? What was your impression? Was he helpful? Was he ineffectual? Um, hard it was hard to deal with because uh, he wouldn't really tell you where he stood. But uh, I think he had opposed us. He didn't believe in the land freeze. I don't think. We had a hard time getting a promise out of him to hold the land please but I don't think he—he uh, he really believed in, in the things that he told us. Grudgingly told us, I might say. <laughs> right. Well, the uh, the other group that we haven't talked about is, is uh, the oil industry, and and one of the reasons I asked about Aspinall was that. Um, there was an effort to get Aspinall to move that bill prior to the August recess of 1970, and he didn't do it. And then by that time, TAPS has reorganized itself into Valley and sort of as his first official act, I don't know if you were in town for this, but uh, Ed Patton came up to the Anchorage Chamber of Commerce and said, uh, his speech. He said, "Oh, by the way, I'd like you to know that there's not going to be a pipeline until we settle wine lands." At which point, the Chamber of Commerce and all these people go, "Oh, we didn't understand that," <laughs> and they all went, according to the press accounts, sort of like crazy, sort of trying to figure out how to get Aspinall to move the bill. And they were going to send a delegation back, and they had Stevens and Gravel over there, and, and it was apparently really quite funny. <laughs> you know, to see this light bulb going off in their head, you know, only, you know, you couldn't tell them this. Ed, once Ed Patton told them it wasn't going to be a pipeline, then all of a sudden they, got, they understood and it, it would have been a riot if I <laughs> And so I guess uh, uh, that whole they obviously were very active the next year, 1971, but, <clears> but when Taps was still around, um, were they active in Washington, D.C.? Did you see them during like the Senate? Markups only—that's what of stuff? Like. No, we were always a little bit paranoid about influence of the oil companies, and we always watched for any activity, or just from questioning to see if any of their lobbyists had been around, what they might be saying, who they were talking to, and what. But we never really crossed their trail anywhere. Hmm. Uh, and the only thing I can think is that they did want to get their pipeline started. And I suspect their, I always suspected that their position was we don't care what the terms of the settlement are, just solve it. And when uh, they took that stand and when they were ready to build it, I think they did influence uh, the movement, but not the terms. Right. But you didn't, you weren't in daily communication with, with no. their lobbyists. I know Hugh Gallagher was on the scene at that point and yeah. people like that. Well. Uh, We did talk to AFL-CIO, and and they endorsed us. National Council of Churches endorsed us. I went to Detroit to their convention, talked to 10,000 delegates, the biggest crowd I ever talked to, and they endorsed us uh, unanimously. And we had private meetings with AFL-CIO officials in D.C., and they finally endorsed us. Okay, well, um, one of the th- one of the things that begins to change the whole scene uh, are the nineteen seventy elections. And uh, one of the things that I had sort of forgotten about—I'm embarrassed to say—was that while all this is going on uh, in nineteen seventy, you had run in the primary for Secretary of State. Yeah, and I forgot about that. <laughs> and I and I think that uh, before that. You had been on the Anchorage school board. Right? When 69. you? Sixty-nine. It was on unfinished term. Someone quit, and I was there for one year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had enough of that. <laughs> well, one year was enough. Yeah, well, as you can see, what's happening today in uh, the school board hasn't so. changed much. <laughs> uh, well, then, uh, uh, in terms of the of uh, of your nineteen seventy race, did I guess you lost by about eight thousand votes? I think. Voucher or something like that. Eight or nine thousand. Did uh, what kind of a of a campaign were you able to run? Did you, you Yeah, it was to... a very low key campaign. I think uh, there were three of us. Chuck. Uh, hmm. Anyway, there were there was three of us in the race. I was uh, I spent fifty cents a vote, and I think uh, Red Voucher spent five dollars yeah. and fifty cents a vote there. Mm-hmm. And analysis mm-hmm. afterwards. So. It was a matter of money. Did you get out and travel statewide? You didn't have the money to do it. I that. didn't have the money I to do it. Okay. Um, well, the the uh, couple interesting things happened in that in that 1970 election, in addition to your race, and that is, uh, uh, first of all, Stevens is is elected uh, finally in his own right, and and uh, to what extent. Prior to that election, um, I mean, do, do you think that that election helped? It's uh, the right way to say this. Uh, it would seem to me that, that all through 1969 and 1970, that Stevens would have sort of been a trapped laboratory rat, and that on the one hand, he had seen that you guys had really elected Mike Pavell. So he knew what the, the power of the Bush vote you know, was focused. And on the other hand, he naturally, his natural constituencies were sort of the Anchorage Fairbanks Chamber of Commerce. Okay. And you guys obviously both wanted completely different things with respect to land claims. And <clears throat> did you see that kind of tension in 69 and 70, and did that change when Stevens was elected in his own right, or was Stevens pretty much consistent all the way through? Stevens... Stevens was pretty consistent, but I think he started to form alliances with uh, people who became his friends in the native community at that point. So he started started uh, giving us a little more support, looking at elections in his own right. So I think it softened him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing is, did uh, obviously most of you guys were Democrats, right. and and. Uh, Obviously, Willie was running for the Senate in 1970. You had been politically active, running for statewide office. Uh, and, you know, even Don Wright, who we'll talk about in a second, was running for the state senator in Anchorage. An amazing amount of political activity from, from people in the Native leadership. And um, uh, did you guys? Uh, what did you do about Steve? You guys actively worked for Window K the way you worked for Gravel, or did you guys sit that one out? Or did people actively support Stevens? Or how did I've cracked the numbers yet to look at the auction. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I think we kind of sat it out. Uh, I don't remember anybody uh, really uh, taking a stand on that race. And well, then how about uh, how about Miller egan I know that. They had split. I mean, Egan. I have been through the, the, press clips that that Egan was really quite adamant that yes, the state should participate. He didn't. He wouldn't tell you how many acres he supported. But the idea that that the state didn't shouldn't participate in this thing, and that he said the acres were negotiable during the campaign. And uh, did you guys? Uh, what'd you do about Egan Miller? Did, did you also sit that out? or was. No, I think as strong individual support. I don't think AFN took a stand, but uh, individually most people looked for Egan, publicly, even. And I remember first uh, Evan Hobson took Egan on, and then switched to help him, and he ended up with Special Assistant. Right, yeah, you know, you know, just to set the mood, which I think was a good mood. I mean, the day he was sworn in is when he publicly announced he was hiring Evan and Byron, which in terms of obviously sending a good signal, yeah, to you guys, I would assume. Um, Did you guys know that was coming? That, uh, no? Uh, not the appointments. Right. But both Evan and Byron were close to him. Mm-hmm. Eben, because he'd been around in the legislature in the league, and, well, Byron, mm-hmm. because uh, they were... Uh, for some reason, Egan kind of adopted Yakutat, and Byron was young mayor, and, and they liked each other, and got along well. well then the, and then, of course, the last guy who proves who to be, I think, critically important, was Nick Begich. Right. And uh, what was your um, impressions of Nick, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, what, if anything, did you guys do for him in his campaign? Well, again, the um, AFN was... Uh, we weren't all Democrats, so we had dissension. So we really didn't—I don't remember us ever endorsing. But I personally got involved with uh, Nick Baggage and supported him strongly. And and, uh, and where where Nick won uh, at AFN against uh, Howard Pollock was his stand on uh, on the landfills. There was a meeting in Fairbanks in October, and we had about 800 people in the audience, and uh, I asked all of the uh, candidates what their stand was on the land trees. Mike Revelle, um, Pollock, and uh, Beggage. And uh, they all gave support, but it took, took me three times to get Pollock to take a stand on it. And uh, he he gave a long, involved answer, and, uh, and you know gave a lukewarm support. And when Nick Begich got to the microphone and asked him what's your stand on the land freeze, he spread his legs, and put his fist in the air, and said, "I'll hold the land freeze till hell freezes over." And there was pandemonium in the in the <laughs> audience, or sort of, foot stomping and whistling, and, and he really. Uh, Got the crowd on his side by his um, unequivocal stand. He didn't waste words and mm-hmm. he just came right to the point and said he would support him. Mm-hmm. And so Nick got a strong Bush support. Mm-hmm. So that would have been uh, the 68 convention. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, he he did work at this he did. for a couple cycles. Yeah. You know, it looks like he really put together a statewide organization. So it wouldn't have been. Because Pollock obviously hadn't had stepped aside by seventy because he'd gone off to run for governor. So but so so then Nick's sort of affiliation with the native community then would have started back then if he that he was somebody that they should should encourage. Well let's let's just take a break. Sure. Um, we were just talking about the the nineteen seventy election which which occurred in uh, in November which of nineteen seventy, which obviously uh, brought into nineteen seventy one a whole new lineup in terms of vegan and baggage that would prove quite important. Uh, but we haven't talked about the native leadership. And uh, I guess the the first question about that is that that uh, you had been AFM president since since the spring of nineteen sixty seven when, when AFN had been organized. Uh, You had decided uh, at the October 1970 convention not to run re-election to another term. Uh, Why was that? Uh, My thinking was, I'd taken the organization and the the effort as far as I could. Every organization picks up the strengths and weaknesses of the person heading it up. And I thought it needed new energy, because I was pretty burned out. <clears throat> and there were some areas that I thought maybe could use some a different thrust. So I stepped aside. I thought uh, my expectation was that really was going to get the presidency. Um, well, that's actually was going to be my next question. Oh. Of course, is that obviously that's not what happened. Yeah, and right. uh, yeah. I know how it happened. happened. Well, I was, you know the. But before I I get to to that, uh, obviously the guy that that was elected was Don Wright, and and, um, Don had obviously, um, to say that Don has been a controversial member of the Native community would be be putting it somewhat mildly, and uh, obviously he had been involved with CINA. Uh, I think sort of at the beginning, and as I understand it, he had taken over being president of CINA and he had left the presidency of that organization to go take on on AFN. Uh, I helped him get into it. Well, well I was going to say, how did Don get involved in all of this and what was his involvement at CINA? And um, Don moved to Anchorage from Fairbanks and got involved in CINA. And uh, there I... I wrote into the bylaws of C.I.N.A. two-term limit because I thought it was good, good training ground. We needed to get uh, Native people up to speed and and on their feet and familiar with parliamentary procedure and talking to audiences and whatnot. So I thought a good way to do that was it was a good training ground. So I wrote in a two-term limit and then uh, Don became the president, and as president of CINA, he took stands many times that were different from AFN, even when I asked him not to, uh, for instance, endorse uh, uh, candidates, but he, he did, and he was his own, did his own thinking. <clears throat> so, uh, but I helped him get into CINA. In, uh, and CINA was the organization that called the first statewide meeting. Right. So uh, he was right in the center of it, being here, and he was active with all the lawyers. Um, so it was it was a natural step for him to try to get a DFB. I didn't think he would make it because he was controversial. Well, uh, now he had been uh, sort of a. After the president, you had, like, first vice presidents and second vice presidents of right. AFN. And he had been a, a vice president of AFN at some time in the past. I can't In, in the beginning, he was the first vice president. First uh, first organized meeting, he was vice president. And subsequently, when we had elections, it was uh, Willie Hensley and John Borbich, first and second vice presidents. So Well, and actually, maybe that's a question I, I don't know the answer to, and that is, I know that at that, at that spring of 67 organizing meeting, it looks like everybody who sort of showed up to be on the AFN board got together and sort of picked you to be the president and Willie, or I mean, and Borbidge to be a vice president and other people to be different officers. When did when did uh, AFN really start electing you guys? When was the first time that that you had to run to be there in Probably the next October, right after that. Mm. So, like October 67? Yeah. You probably know the sequence, but it was, maybe I talked about it before, a few years ago. Uh (laughs) But, uh, in 66, we sent out a committee to write bylaws. Lori Lepinon, chaired that committee. In January of '67, we met in Fairbanks and uh, we had a go around with the Attorney General Donald Burr, and we failed to adopt bylaws. And we had another meeting April of '67, where we adopted bylaws and, and elected uh, the first officers to carry it to the first convention in '67. The first AFN convention. The first sixty-six was the first statewide meeting. Right. Right. So then, so it was really then since sixty-seven you had been running. Right for the job. That we well, uh, okay. Now we are to <laughs> to uh, how it is that Don got elected? Um, obviously, you know, what I know from the tender times, of course, is that you had decided not to run, and that the three candidates were were Don and Willie and. Warbridge. Um, how did uh, how did all that happen? We had a meeting. It, the meeting was here at Anchorage at the uh, Carpenter's Hall. Uh, John Hope was a parliamentarian, and uh, the reason Don got elected was he got the uh, he got groups to support him. I think. Uh, senator from Bethel, um, Ray, Christensen? Ray Christensen, got the uh, Bethel delegation to go for, for Don, and that was just what he needed to put him over. I think it was two ballots. All right. second ballot uh, was Willie and Don, and it was the Bethel delegation that put Don across, mm-hmm. which kind of surprised me, but they had uh, discipline named because of huh. Now, do you know uh, why they would have been attracted, or actually, mm-hmm. I mean, he obviously had, in addition to Bethel, that might have been the margin for the big vote, but yeah. he also, I soon had Taranot chiefs with him, I think, do you know? And, you know, I don't remember. Not totally. They split. Most of them split. The, dele- the individual group delegation yeah. split. Well, why, why were people attracted to Don's candidacy, do you think? as opposed to William Woodridge. I mean, what was it that Don... I mean, was it totally just a personality thing, or did he have a different view of where the land claims up that was going, or... Uh, no, I think he was in agreement with most, with most of what we did. I mean, he, as far as the issues were, he he disagreed with how we approached them, We weren't uh, bombastic about that. I <laughs> He was always outspoken and controversial and disagreeable in the meetings sometimes. But he worked closely with the lawyers. And uh, I think uh, the, uh, some of the people just, most of the people just liked his approach. Okay, well, uh, the other thing with that is that uh, he seems to be of, of sort of that circle of AFN leadership, uh, uh, the most that was the most active with with NCAI and the outside Indian groups, is that perception, on my part, correct? Were there other views that were were as active as Don, or was he really the link to those other people? We all had our ties, uh, but you're correct in that he was more active. He he was NCAI area vice president, and he really wanted it, worked at it, organize the people to go down there and elect them, and, and uh, he was active with outside groups. He's responsible for AFN getting $250,000 loan from Yakima's. I was going to ask you about that, as to whether that was his, yeah, think. it was his his uh, friendship with uh, Bob Jim. He was chairman of Yakima's at the time. <clears throat> well, that actually. Before we move on, that's another time I guess to stop and talk about the money. Um, obviously, it, uh going into it. The Tionics had come up with this hundred thousand dollar loan that got you guys going, and and uh, the the Yakima loan I think was was late summer of seventy. Um, what kind of shape was AFN in financially all through your tenure and? Did that make a difference in the kind of lobby you guys were able to it, it did make a difference, and uh, it wasn't the, the, the Italian loan that got them going, it was my sacrifices, because I took on AFN because it was an issue and I, that I thought needed resolution, and I took it on when AFN had $9 in the bank. Uh, I got three months behind on my house payment, I got three months behind on the car payment, uh, uh, we ate pretty sparsely at home for, for quite a while, and then we got a hundred thousand dollar loan. About a year, into, we got a hundred thousand dollar loan from Tyonics. Up until then, we uh, we did a couple of things. That, uh, we asked people. We solicited dollar and two dollar donations from around the state. People, ten dollar donations. That's what kept us going initially. Then we tried to assess the uh, nonprofits, and they were having problems of their own, so they didn't all pay their assessments. Uh, CINA carried some of the burden, because I remember at one meeting, going back to D.C., we called a Sunday meeting in, in uh, Anchorage here to raise... $1,100. Willie and I went back to a meeting with Udall and uh, Governor Hickle uh, on Hickle's first approach to, uh, to talk about land claims in Bartlett's office. And I called Bartlett, and asked him if the, what I'd heard was right, there was a meeting. He said, yeah, come on back, when you get here, just walk in. So, because uh, I, I got along well with Bartlett, and uh, really liked them, so he was real good to us, and uh, so, FN, it, it did affect our lobby, because it was real tough just to get a fair to go back there. Well, I know that, I've seen from the Tender Times that you were supposed to, at least by the end, have been, been getting paid like twenty grand a year or something, did you, did you ever no. see any of that kind of money? Or? No. <laughs> no, I was never authorized to get twenty grand. I was, uh, I remember the first resolution was uh, I could pay myself a thousand a month if I could raise it. <laughs> and that was, those were the words of Jules Wright from FNA. <laughs> and then towards the end it went to uh, eighteen uh, thousand. And that was actually because of the Yakima thing, yeah. so there was actually some money there. Right. It also, I never have asked... Uh, I know you have a new family now, in terms of trying to do this, this thing uh, from scratch in 66, 67, 68, how many did you have, you had kids in those days that Mm -hmm. were pretty young, didn't you? I had three, and uh, they were pretty tough, they were all young, I took them back to D.C. with me for that three month period, and uh, left them alone a lot, uh, yeah. But that was pretty cool. You now, one of the reasons I asked about the money, and it's, it's actually sort of getting to some of the questions I wanted to ask at the end, but this is a good spot to do it, and that is that, that uh, as you know, there's, there's been, the last 10 years or so, a lot of, of criticism in the, in the Native community sort of coming out of the villages about how, well, we, were, we didn't really know what was going on, we were never consulted. nobody ever gave us, you know, a copy of S-1830 versus a copy of S-35, and, you know, you you get the brunt of a lot of that. Um, uh, One of the things that has crossed my mind, uh, thinking about it, is that obviously in those days, um, not only were there no telephones, really, in many villages, but but there wasn't even any electricity in many. Certainly, there's no no, uh, KYUK radio and TV, I mean, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, That's true. What was uh, the level of, of the ability to communicate sort of with, uh, I mean, were the, were the leaders sort of out there on their own as a matter of necessity, or was there more mm-hmm. communication than people now say? Or? Well, as much as we could do with, uh, you've got to remember, it was just me and a, and a part-time secretary. And you're correct, there were no telephones. Uh, there was no radio station in... Bethel of Galena or Kotzebue. I think there's one unknown. So when we called the first meeting, I uh, expected about 14 people because those are the people that we knew and that the organizations that existed. Um, our efforts included letters to those people and sometimes to villages, to the nonprofits. Uh, and then I wrote something called Federation Footnotes, that uh, I tried to submit a weekly little box uh, of information of what AFN was doing. We Did that go to the Thunder Times? Thunder Times. Uh, and then we we got a hold of Ruben Gaines, who a well-known voice in Alaska, and would submit weekly reports to him, and he would put them in his style of what we were doing, and we aired those, as many places that would take them for free. We sent these tapes around to uh, Fairbanks, Nome, Cordova, Anchorage, and Southeastern. And how many of them aired, I don't know, but I know that that was aired. So we made every effort that we could. Besides, um, when we got the $100,000 loan, we, we chartered DC-3s in small airplanes to get people to Fairbanks. And one reason was um, when we would get before Congress, they would say, well, who do you represent and how do you get elected? And my answer would be, well, we, at the last convention we had 800 people from around the state, and they included people from every village and most every village. And uh, so we tried to get as many people in as we could and hopefully, when they went back, they talked about what went on. But obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, so, with, with the resources we had, uh, we knew we were... We were uh, our communications wasn't adequate, but with the manpower we had, we had to uh, just assume that our back was protected and face the outside world the Congress and the state, mm-hmm. and do battle there. And uh, to keep the thing moving, because I think we hit a window of time, and opportunity that that was unique and would not be repeated again. I think. Did you know that at the time? I mm-hmm. felt that at the time. Ten, ten years earlier, if the government would have said there's fifty million dollars, we probably would have accepted it. And ten years later, because uh, the oil, we could never have gotten forty million acres. So I think we maximized time and. Uh, money and land in that little window so um, the criticism uh, is probably valid in that there wasn't enough information but at the same time it's not completely valid because we did get people in from all over the state okay did uh, I guess the uh, uh, the next thing is obviously Don Reich takes over the uh, <coughs> And he immediately gets Adrian Parmeter involved, and, and, you know, there's lots of things going on in terms of the White House, and Laura Burke, and, you know, and all of that stuff, and, uh, and uh, after you left the presidency, how how much of that were you personally involved in? Did you, uh, I don't know, did you go, you'd been working for the Human Rights Commission or something before you had been AFM president? Uh, yeah. But what did you do, did you go back to... A regular full-time job, or how did that No, I, I went and hmm. back to my first training, that's into electronics. I opened a uh, sales and repair shop in Sitka. Oh, so you moved back to Sitka? I did, I moved back to Sitka. Okay. And then were you, how much were you involved in in, in 71? Were you pretty much out of it? Yeah, I was you? pretty much, I just, I, I stayed away from it. <clears throat> I didn't want to be part of the problem. <laughs> if Don, Don took over, he should have his. Because obviously I, I still had a lot of support. and uh, But I didn't want to interfere you know, with what his program was. Okay. Did uh, did you stay on the AFN board then, or was completely? No, I was out. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, well, one of the other things, sort of getting to the end, is that uh, if there is is any theme that that comes across. I was rereading last night your 1969 testimony the first time Arthur Goldberg shows up, and on your list of, of sort of non-negotiable demands from the Native community, one of them is that, you know, however the settlement turns out, uh, you know, we want a settlement that will allow us to run our own affairs. That is a bottom-line sort of deal Cluster here, and, and uh, it has been amazing to me that um, that that's obviously what, what Congress eventually agreed to. Um, but at the same time, uh, that Congress did that in 1971 and in 1969 and 1970. I, I don't know if you remember uh, uh, John Borbridge was trying to finally get Congress to pass the legislation to. To give the clinton Haida to Central Council the money that they've been trying to get for thirty-five years, and uh, and that went to conference in seventy-one. I don't know if you remember all this. That, that Gravel had changed the the bill for the clinton Haida settlement to do exactly that, which was to say that you know the, the Central Council just gets the money like any other people, and they can do what they want, and and Aspinall and these people. Said, you know, over our goddamn dead bodies, they're going to do that. You know, I've been the chairman of this committee for 20 years, and we've never had an Indian judgment where people didn't have to come to the Secretary of the Interior and show that they weren't going to waste the money. And I'm not going to start this precedent now, and blah 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 blah. And they had this big, this big bloodletting in the spring of 1970, and Aspinall wins. <laughs> you know, that that you know, the pointed hide of people had to just like every other Indian tribe had to go, you know, put up with all these BIA bureaucrats. And then nevertheless, that's for, a, for a insignificant, as you look back on it, 7.5 million. And a year later, the Congress puts almost a billion dollars on the street, with no strings whatsoever attached, mm-hmm. exactly the way that you had, had really demanded when, when, at the beginning of this. Uh, how did that happen? I mean, do you have any light to shed on, on how that sort of attitude by Congress got reversed so quickly? It seems to me a major part of the settlement. Probably oh, because Aspinall wasn't there. <laughs> but that you're right, that was our position all along, because we used to say that a lot of examples of failure around the country, and the organization with its finger in the pie all the time was the BIA, they didn't want them making our decisions for us. We could do it ourselves. If we're going to fail, we'll fail on our own without government help. And well, uh, that sort of leads me into my, my next to last question, and that is, that is that that's a great idea and concept. And, and when I talked to Bill Van s about it, it, I asked him exactly the question I just asked you. Is how on earth did they just hang this completely return? And he said, among other things, that in addition to just sort of the... the how the times were changing, you know, Indian self-determination, Alcatraz, all that stuff was going on, but that, he said it was also, he says, you know, what are we going to do when guys like, you mentioned, you you know, when guys like Emonati and John Borbridge and Williams would come in front of the committee and say, look, we're normal citizens, why can't we, we're obviously capable of running our own affairs like everybody else, why are you treating us like, like wards, what are we going to say, you know, and, and my response to that is, well, that's great, but if you look at the way the Claims Act was set up, with, you know, 200 village corporations and 12 regions uh, divided all over the state, that if you did just the basic math, you know, of like a bo- village board of directors with like 10 people on on the board, that if you did the math, what you were presupposing as a policy judgment is that there are, were like 3,000 people and... Willa Hensley's, and not only were there 3,000 of them, but they weren't just all living in Anchorage, they were living in Noatak and Shafornik, and, 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 <clears throat> and Cake, and all these places, and, and we all know that that was not, you know, the, the situation, and I guess I'm, that's a long-winded way of asking the question of, did, did you guys think about those kinds of things at the time, or were events just moving so fast that people didn't think about it, or... Or, how did people inside the native <coughs> community view the fact that there might be manpower staffing problems? Well, um, I don't think we really addressed that issue, but we must have been aware of it a little bit because our first bill was for uh, one statewide organization to provide technical backup, legal advice, economic advice, business advice, which would have been much more efficient. Ninety-five percent of the money would have gone to the villages, um, and the land was all in the villages. So, but when when it turned out to be two hundred bills uh, corporations, I always thought Stevens was behind it, and my personal feeling was that it was designed for failure. Uh, that may be unfair, but I that just was my my thought. There. But we never really. Uh, Bought it or discussed it. You I mean, this is the village corporation. The village corporation. Um, when you say designed for failure, do you think that that um, there were people that that uh, sort of did that on purpose, or do you think it was just designed in terms of when you look at the structure retrospectively, where obviously it obviously wasn't going to work. Uh, I think it was just by accident. Uh, Uh, self-determination movement, not. but not. In the long run, who knows, I consider this whole thing a social experiment in many ways, and in the long run it may be uh, the best approach. Okay, well, actually, I did think of one other question before I get to my last question, and that is that one guy we haven't talked about through this whole thing uh, that's in his own way is as legendary as Don Wright, if not more so, is, is Charlie. And, uh, uh, I sort of talked to Charlie. I know Charlie's opinion of Charlie's contribution <laughs> to all this. Uh, what? How did Charlie fit into everything that was going on in Washington? Was he helpful, unhelpful? Did he, did he have influence in this process, Either He didn't make a fan or with the committees? Or? Amazingly, Charlie had a lot of influence. And Charlie is Charlie. You know, he, he came up with money and travel and traveled first class many times and did the best hotels and and he was helpful because uh, tongue in cheek uh, we used to say hey if you don't deal with with us who are more moderate and we get replaced you're going to deal with uh, with Charlie and uh, his supporters so who are you going to listen to (laughs) you you have to give us something or otherwise if we come home empty handed we'll be dealing with a much more militant uh, organization with those kinds of arguments, you could make to Stevens and Gravel and people yeah. like that, it, yeah. And I think it was true. If if our approach to uh, testifying and uh, not marching, like Charlie marched downtown, Maybridge, and nine hundred million dollars on the first lease sale, and uh, he was an activist in the mold of uh, marching and things like that, that. Uh, if we end up empty-handed, he would say, "Well, see, that's the point a formula for failure. We've got to really assert our rights more forcefully." And I think he would have won. The times are such that emotions are running high, and uh, I don't think it was so empty. Uh, I don't want to say threat, right, but uh, empty uh, voicing of what might have happened. Okay. So in other words, it was a uh, sort of a helpful, yeah explaining to the process how reasonable you guys were. Yeah. Okay, well then actually my my last question, which which is sort of beyond what I'm trying to do, but I think in terms of people listening to this tape uh, years from now for other purposes, I think we've, I've been asking everybody who is a major participant, and that is that it's it's always easy to do with the, uh, uh, the benefit of hindsight and Monday morning quarterback but uh, sort of in a general way, looking back on it now for 20 years, uh, how do you think all this on balance has turned out, uh, both good and bad? And if you could do it over again in terms of setting up a different kind of, of settlement, uh, either both in terms of the, of the amount of land and money or the structure, um, looking back on it, how, how would you do that? Well, I think the structure is probably all right. Um, I, I think the money settlement was uh, short, and where we made the loss, or where we got the big loss, was uh, the 2% in perpetuity, which would amount to, by today, $7 billion that would have been in the corporations and into village corporations. But that was handed to us, that was not negotiated. Our stand was 2% in perpetuity. And, uh, congress and their arguments that they would not approve an and open-ended. This is uh, tape two of um, the interview I'm doing with Emil uh, Nadi on uh, November 30th, uh, 1992, and we were just talking about October 30th. Oh, I'm sorry, just I say November? Oh. October 30th, 1992. Uh, tape two of two tapes. And uh, on tape one, we had just been discussing uh, how Mr. Nadi had thought all this had turned out and on balance, and what, if anything, uh, he would uh, do differently if he was starting from scratch. And we were just talking about the, uh, the fact that Congress had, had uh, altered the AFN position of the 2% royalty uh, in perpetuity and had put a, a basically a limit on, on the amount of money. And, uh, that, no, that that was the big big uh, loss in the uh, in our efforts, and uh, if we had got that, it would have made a big difference in, in terms of uh, the money. The land, I think, is about as good as you could have done. Uh, we started at eighty million acres and compromised down to forty with the promise of state support. We ended up with forty forty four million. Uh, so, I wouldn't have changed it, and as far as measuring how successful they are, uh, maybe someone uh, can do some guesstimating of how successful it is, someone in social sciences, but I think, you know, prior to land claims, uh, we used to say, we're jerking people out of uh, leapfrogging three generations to pull people from a subsistence lifestyle into the Western economy and we're trying to do it in one generation. Uh, most of us didn't know what a corporation was. Uh, and so now, just overnight, we're, we're uh, dealing with corporations and uh, reporting uh, annual reports on SEC formats. We're using cumulative voting. We're electing boards of directors and dealing with uh, a lot of corporate law and negotiating with oil companies doing contracts and doing all these things. And the uh, the uh, advancement from uh, subsistence, total subsistence lifestyle, to getting people in the corporate world, I think is uh, something we may never measure, but I think it, it's been uh, fairly successful. So, I wouldn't have changed it. Are you done? I got a couple of things. uh. Oh, sure, go ahead. Um, I had I I had one that I thought of while you were saying. But why don't you go and put on? No, once you? Well, all right. I'll the of trail. Okay. okay, Well, the the last one of that that I think sort of is is uh, related, but not totally. Is that as I have gone through this project, I've tried to to sort of place the Alaskan Native experience in sort of the context of in my own mind, of of what was going on with with Native Americans in the United States in terms of how they had had been dealt with and how they sort of saw their situation. And uh, one of the amazing things that seems to to differentiate the the Alaska experience is is, uh, the Alaska Natives' uh, involvement from a very early time in sort of the state political structure I mean, beginning with Bill Paul in the twenties, and you know Andrew Hope and, and the, and the, the issues and all that. But that's, but but when you when you get into this modern era, you know the the well, I'm gonna we're gonna protect Alaska natives. How do we do that? You know, Willie Hensley runs the way to do that. Willie Hensley runs for the legislature. John Sackett runs for the legislature. You run for the statewide office. Don Wright runs for, for things. You know, and I've actually been in contact with. I got so curious, I wrote to, like, the heads of the political science departments at, like, the University of Arizona, which has, obviously, a big Indian population, and and also South Dakota. And they both wrote back and said, you know, we've done very little research on on that, but what we can tell you is that there has historically always been hardly any, until very, very recently, any real involvement by by the indigenous populations of our states in the state political spectrum. And when you look back on the ability of you guys to influence Egan and and, and to... you know, the control you exercised over Stevens and Gravel was controlled by voting, you know? (laughs) And it seems that that's sort of a, a completely different sort of philosophy or point of view of what your situation is from other Native American groups. So I guess... My question is, I'm not sure if it's a question, but I guess it's, do you think my perception in that regard is correct? And if so, what do you think accounts for that sort of different attitude on the part of, of you guys as opposed to other groups? Well, I think back in the 20s and 30s, there was conscious effort on the part of A and B to be political happy. And I'm told that they uh, said you're a democrat and you're a republican because we need people in both camps and they became expert parliamentarians because uh, these <coughs> they wanted to adapt to the system and if they did that they decided to become experts which they were and still are uh, i think we we uh kind of uh, we respected their abilities in parliamentary procedure, and we, uh, we didn't divide up into Democrat and Republican, but we did encourage people to run, like Sackett, uh, Hensley, and others. And we knew that, but uh, well, Willie was very aware of it, uh, going into uh, into Juneau. He, he was on a mission. He. He stood up on the floor of the Senate and said if the state of Alaska and the legislature can't support land claims, he was going to resign in protest. And so, it was all part of, I think, of a pattern of trying to influence what we thought, we did everything we thought we had to do. Okay, well, uh, you had mentioned that you had a couple of things. A couple of things, but, uh, just on the uh, a side note on the Sea Alaska, it and Haida. We had a big debate as an event whether we were going to allow Southeast to join us. The argument against it was that they would weaken our case because they already have a settlement, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, if we bring them in, there'll be less need to, to settle ours because they, Congress will feel that they have settled the Question. So it went to a vote. It was a tie vote. I cast the tie-breaking vote to allow Clinton Hubbard to join our efforts in see Alaska. More than that, um, we, we were told by the head of the forest department, Mr. Johnson, years ago in southeast Alaska, that if we went allowed southeast we went and tried to get land out of the forest, he would guarantee that our bill would die, not because of his efforts, but because uh, he warned us how strong the uh, environmental people were in Sierra Club, who would oppose us. But we went ahead and, were, and we were facing so much opposition that another <laughs> warning was didn't influence us. Well now, what made you uh, cast your ballot the way that you did? What was your thinking on why they you Well, my thinking was uh, they did have a settlement, but it wasn't fair. And if it wasn't fair, if we were going to band together, we had to stick together all the way. And so I cast <coughs> uh, the vote to let them in, which was, they went from a $7 million corporation to be capitalized at about $75 million. so we benefited greatly, besides getting the land. Well, now, uh, the other thing about that is I had heard that story from others, but I've never been able to find any AFM board meetings as to when that would have been in the process. To you. <clears throat> well, it would have been. Just prior to Goldberg coming on board, Oregon 68 today. Yeah. Okay. And it was out here, a Nice Boulevard, I remember it Okay. Um, was there, uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, obviously it was a tie vote, which means that there was some deep conflict in, inside AFN as to whether this was the right thing to do. Uh, I, I assume without knowing that it was sort of the Arctic Slope kind of people that. Thought that it wasn't a good idea, or do you know how that, what the different arguments were? No, I, I, I don't. And I don't remember specifically, but I think Don Wright led the opposition, Willie Hensley led the pro, uh, and then uh, the lawyers joined in. It was kinda, kind of exciting. <laughs> <laughs> i that. bet. Uh, The other one was another little side note was the Hickel Confirmation. Uh, Let's take a break. Okay. Hickel Confirmation. Hickel Confirmation, right? In uh, December of uh, 68, about 5 o'clock or 4 to 5, Cliff Groh called me and said... uh, Secretary of Interior wants to talk to us at his house, and I, I said, well, I don't know where he lives, why don't you come by and pick me up? And I, I called on right away because rumors were around that Hickel was going to be Secretary of Interior. So he came by and picked me up, and we went out to Hickel's home, and when we walked in, um, Bob Zelnick and Larry Fanning were sitting with Hickel, who were, for the tape, Daily News. I guess Fanning ran the Daily News at the time, and Zelnick was a reporter. Yeah, him. Fanning was the owner, or publisher, and uh, Zelnick was his uh, reporter. And they had what would have been tomorrow morning's uh, Drew Pearson column. And in it, Drew Pearson said, Hickle should not be Secretary of Interior because of his uh, stand on the Eskimos out in Bethel selling fish to the Japanese, which was a big fisheries flap. And so, when I walked in, uh, they were discussing what would have been tomorrow morning's paper, and they wanted me to issue a statement yeah. offsetting that. And I said, well, I'd be glad to do it, but uh, before I did that, I uh, I needed to know something. He said, uh, first of all, our position has been to hold a land freeze. What would he do as Secretary of Interior? And he said, well, I've thought about that, and I've talked to some people, and we're going to look out for your interests. We're not going to allow you to get hurt. And he's uh, going to escrow money and do some things if uh, land was opened up. I said, well, you know, as governor, you uh, opposed the land freeze and you filed a lawsuit against it. And I said, I would look pretty bad if I endorsed you and then you lifted the land freeze. So I said, I would need some assurances that, that you would uh, not lift the land freeze. And again, he said, well, I look out for your interest. And he had talked to Joe Fitzgerald, who apparently agreed with them uh, from the Federal Field Committee. <coughs> and uh, and he asked me if I knew outside Indians. <coughs> I said, yeah, we work with NCAI and some other groups. Well, could I get some letters of support for them? I said, yeah, I could, but I really need more assurance than that. And so uh, we left the meeting at that point. Well, Our local attorney was real upset with me, Cliff Because he was personal friends of Hickel. When we left the room, he said, You called Hickel a liar. And I said, No, I didn't. He said, Yeah, he said, uh, He promised you he wouldn't hurt you. He said, But he didn't promise to hold a land freeze. And I said, I would, I would look real foolish and wouldn't be doing my job if I agreed to endorse him and he lifted the land freeze. Because that's one been one of our major efforts, and uh, and uh, I said, uh, I, w- I want him to say it publicly, <clears throat> and he said, Well, you don't trust them, and all kind. I said, Well, if if he lifted the land freeze, and uh, and. Uh, I said, well, you promise us not to. He'd say, well, I didn't really promise that, and, and what's my word against the governor's word or Secretary of Interior's word? It doesn't mean anything. I said, I want it in writing, because Cliff was close to him, and, and uh, but he wouldn't ask him. He wouldn't would put it to him. And so Cliff quit FN over that issue, and uh, Cliff was working real close with Don Wright, and he got Don Wright to endorse Hickel. Uh, in the Sunday paper, I think it was, Don Wright, CINA, endorsed Hickel, AFN. In the meantime, we called a special meeting. I called special meeting. I said, I I'll I will endorse you if the uh, board of directors, that's a decision for them to make." So we called a special meeting. Unanimously, they said, go back to D.C. and take some people with you. And they gave me carte-blank. They said, you can endorse, you can withhold endorsement, you can oppose, uh, depending on what he does during the hearings. So I picked Willie Hensley, John Borbridge, and Evan Hobson. We flew back to D.C. We were back there for two weeks, uh, working the committee. And uh, the day, about the second day of the it. We'd stand out in the the hallway at seven o'clock in the morning to get a good seat. About the second day we walked in, the first two rows in the hearing room were were lined off. And uh, pretty soon it became apparent why a whole group of Alaskans walked in. Atwood, Snedden, Lou Williams, uh, Jesse Carr, a couple of Native guys. And uh, people who voted to send me back there, as a matter of fact. Oh, I think what was Florian Sackett, or who? Uh, Ray Chris, okay. I think, was one of them. And uh, boy, everybody who who's who in Alaska with influence was sitting in the top two rows. We were in the third row. And then Stephen said, I would like uh, those outstanding Alaskans mm-hmm. who uh, support Hickel's nomination to stand up. So all the first two rows stood up, and they'd look back at us and say, in fact, what the hell's wrong with you guys? How come you're still sitting down? <coughs> and uh, we didn't endorse Hickel until the end of the third day where he promised to hold the land freeze. Now, did you talk... One of the things I don't think I, I asked you about this is that during that period of time when you were back there for two weeks, did you actually meet again with Hickel on this? I mean, Groh was back, I think, attempting to shore Hickle up. Um, did, did you attempt to deal with him on this? And I'm trying to remember, I had, yeah, I did. I had breakfast with him one morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, John Gorbridge and I, and uh, it didn't work. We had nice, very nice breakfast, and, and uh, polite conversation, but uh, he wouldn't promise to, to do that. He wouldn't go before the committee. Hmm. And he knew what we wanted, and we, but he wouldn't agree to it. Well, now, how about, how about obviously the the most important guy? I mean, I've read the hearing record, and and guys like me, Lee Metcalf, and and the and other people, uh, you know, certainly made their views clear. But the guy that really pinned Hickle down on this was Steve Jackson. That's right. He just <coughs> would not let him. Wouldn't let him leave all him. the issue. He questioned uh, him. Three days in a row, well, two days in a row, and on the third day, he said, Governor, I read the record last night and I'm not sure where we stand on this issue, but before we proceed, I would like a, uh, an answer. Uh, if you were Secretary of Interior, would you come before this committee uh, before you dispose of any land? And I thought his nomination was hanging in the balance. All right. Well, actually, that's when I asked Van I said, Well, I didn't, you know, now, I mean, Hickel's nomination wasn't really hanging in the balance, he said, oh yeah, that, that when he added up all the trouble that he had gotten in, that that, that nomination was in much more trouble than the eventual vote made it look, and, and I guess the reason that I asked was that, uh, how much were you dealing with, with Jackson and Van Ness, did you meet with, with Jackson personally on this issue, did he have to be convinced that you guys were right, or was he already headed oh, in that he direction? Was... Or? No, his statement was, <clears throat> he, uh, he said Congress was going to get around to deal with the issue, and his, uh, in his words, when they did get around to it in due time, he wanted the corpus intact, so to speak, because <clears throat> he didn't want the, uh, the land all divide up and have nothing to, to grant to whatever decision he made. Right. Now did he, I know that's sort of his position on the on the hearing record. Did, did you guys meet with him privately about this, I and mean, he was that his his view going into this, or did you guys really have to, no, to sell I, him on this idea? I think it was his view. Uh, everything that he did told me that 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 he believed it. Okay. Uh, well, there's one other thing that I just remembered that I think is probably important that we ought to talk about on the tape, and that is something that uh, we were chatting about yesterday, and that is this whole business about whether or not this was really a negotiation in terms of the kind of control that the Native community was really able to, to uh, when we got right down to it, exercise on the, on yeah. the process. Uh, I think we influenced the uh, the terms of the Bill, and uh, land size, um, the money. I don't think we influenced that much. I mean, uh, would, if we had our way, would have had a lot more money. Um, the when it came right down to putting out the final bill, they went behind closed doors and came out with the bill and just handed it to us. Said that was it. After. Four or five years of uh, testifying and lobbying. Uh, in the end, they, they said, "Here it is." Now, uh, in terms of your retirement, were you uh, were you back for the conference at all, or were you still down in Sitka? I was in Sitka. In Sitka. Yeah. Okay. One other thing was uh, I said earlier today that the uh, this was a social experiment because the government at that time was spending a hundred million dollars a year on the, quote, Indian problem, and uh, the situation on the reservations was like it had been for a hundred years. Uh, poor achievement in school, high unemployment, poor housing, the worst health statistics in America, and so Congress was casting about for something different when they passed this. and. and we we rode the the times. First of all, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was just being implemented. Uh, Vietnam War was uh, the protests were in full swing. I was back there in November when 300,000 people marched on the White House in protest. They started at the uh, Arlington National Cemetery and they walked across the Key Bridge and they had the candles and. Uh, inside of a paper cup at night. They walked silently past the White House and down to the steps of the Capitol and uh, blew out the light. And they had the name of a soldier, a dead American around their neck, and they took the name off and threw it into a casket, open casket there. And it was uh, really moving to see these 300,000 people, as far as you could see these, in the night, these candles. Uh, so we were riding uh, that. There was a lot of unrest in America, and I, I didn't think. We used to say, native rights, land rights, are not in question. What's being tested is the American system. Will it respond to a minority from a state that has only three electoral votes, or will it just? Uh, like you're doing in Vietnam, just a, just a neglected feeling of the people. <clears throat> so, but I think all of these things combined. Well, now, what, what about the um, the sort of Indian power movement that was going on at that point? The, I think, actually the month you got back there, no, November 69, I guess you've been there a little bit, was the takeover of Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. And that obviously was going on all through 1970. Um, was, I mean, obviously later there was the BIA takeover and all that stuff. Right. But that was that was later. All all these things ended up, and as well as another debate. Strange enough, the SST debate. And I remember going down there for a hearing. Say so we can testify at two o'clock. and you Show up and you say. All hearings have been canceled, SST debate has been going on all day, and it's likely to go on tomorrow, so we waited for two days. Our issue wasn't important enough nationally to be we were pushed aside. And that's why, when I went to Seattle to talk to the Northwest Federated Tribes, about 800 people in the audience, that's when I made my Separate nation sure. speech. And my purpose was, I couldn't go down and say, we've been testifying for three years, that's not news. I wanted something to get the paper. So I said, if if they can't uh, see their way clear to give us 40 million acres, uh, I would recommend to the Board of Directors that we uh, go to the United Nations or the World Court. And uh, and it had its effect, the effect I wanted. Uh, It hit all the local papers down there, which was Jackson's territory, and all the tribes down there were supporting us. And then I got—I don't know how people found me—but I had clippings from Missouri and Arkansas where my story hit the AP. Uh, and I wanted these senators to pick up a paper and say, "What's this separate nation in Alaska thing? What's this all about?" Because we were swamped by Vietnam, we were swamped by SST debates, we were swamped by other issues, and I wanted to, to bubble it up to the top somehow. And in some small way, I think it, it helped. Right. Well. You certainly caught Atwood's attention. Fact, he, <laughs> he, he took it all quite <laughs> He gave me a personal, personal editorial right, about the thing. Right, he did. Uh, the other <laughs> um, thing about that is one of the ways that it might have gotten out, and maybe it's something else I didn't ask you about, is is that uh, I think it was in late 69, could have been, no, it was late 69, it was, it was uh, uh, Bill Byler and the Association on American Indian Affairs I think started off with a, trying to have a national media campaign remember all that? Was that um, helpful at all, or was that just sort of on the periphery of your activity? Uh, Bill never really supported AFN. He supported ten and our Chiefs oh. and Ketzler, put a lot of money into into them, but he raised a lot of money on the issue, too. So, uh, it was as much helpful for him as it was for us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, like the environmentalists in ANWA. I mean, right. so, um, uh, Do you remember he had some guy named Frazier Barron working with him? Do you remember him at all? I remember the name, but I remember those guys kicking around uh, town. Okay. Uh, Well, I've sort of run through my list. Uh, Do you have uh, anything else you think that we haven't uh, talked about that it would be good for people to know about? Yeah. can't think of anything else. Okay. Well, great. I very much, uh, once again, appreciate it. Uh, It's been great fun for me. Um, I'll be interested in seeing your report.